Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. To me, your organic totally makes sense. Uh, growing organically, there's a, I believe there's enough food being grown. I don't, I don't think we're in a food desert other than when it's created whether through distribution or economics, certainly there's enough food being grown for everybody. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Farm Traveler podcast. Today on the show, we have Earl Herrick of San Francisco's own Earl's Organic Produce. So Earl's going to talk to us about how he started the company, what their goal is in supplying San Francisco and California with fresh organic produce. And he comes up with a really cool line about they are all about selling locally, selling seasonal, and selling organic. And he's going to tell us about how they work with getting produce to San Francisco when that produce is out of season in California. And also kind of his thoughts on organic and why people should be buying organic. And his thoughts on it are pretty good. This is an awesome conversation with Earl's Organic from San Francisco. They specifically have a place over at the Golden Gate Park, which is really neat. So enjoy it. Be sure to check out their website, earlsorganic.com, and we will link everything in the description for this show. Hope you're being safe. Oh, oh, oh. And he's going to talk about, you know, Corona still going on. He's going to talk about what they're doing to keep their produce safe and still deliver fresh produce to people even during a crazy pandemic like this. So anyway, hope you enjoy it. This is episode 57 with Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce. Well, Earl Herrick, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, regardless of the circumstances. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> how, about you how about yourself, Trevor? Hey, I'm doing good. Kind of the same with you. Kind of don't know how to really get on with business during this COVID-19 COVID thing. So you, and I'm very interested to see how you and your business are kind of going through this. So you are with Earl's Organic Produce. You guys kind of do yes. or, organic produce distribution and you're around San Francisco. So 
kind of before we dive into your business, kind of talk, walk us through your background and kind of how you got started with Earl's Organic Produce. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm an Ohio native and I came out here um, in the mid 70s without really any particular training specifically other than um, I was a worker, kind of a worker bee. And I hooked up with a couple guys that had a fruit stand right next to Golden Gate Park. Uh, I was fortunate to have these two guys that hired me that were really <laughs> incredible uh, produce guys. One, incredible amount of passion about what they were doing and about produce in particular. So I was trained by these two uh, <laughs> gifts. Um, and I've, you know, I've maintained relationships with them since then. That's like 50 years. And what we were doing at the, on, on this fruit truck by the park was an old beverage truck that was get, gutted and shells were put in. And one of the guys was go down to the market and go out to the farms locally and pick up product, bring it to the truck. And then him and myself and another guy would, would sell it. And the neighborhood at that point, which I think pretty much is still representative of, it was a hub of three uh, bus uh, routes. It was right next to the Golden Gate Park, so a huge amount of tourists. Uh, it was a very hip culture, of course, and it was also um, butted up against two cultures of Asian and kind of Eastern European. So it was an incredible collection of of resources that I had. Um, and we were bringing everything up on a hanging scale. We all had three and four barrel changers on our belt and everything was two, three, four pounds for a dollar. And I got schooled by the locals and um, I learned a lot about produce right there. Um, so that was it. Uh, from there, I was there for about five years in different capacities of being on that fruit truck opening up stores, starting to become a consultant until one of the guys and his family moved up north into Marin County, north of San Francisco, and opened up a natural food store. So that was about nine, that was about 78. And in a 1980, he called me, he said, hey, we're, we're excelling expectations here. Love for you to come up and work with me. So in 1980, I left the fruit truck, came up to a, a natural food store in Mill Valley, uh, over the next eight years, expanded that to two other stores that eventually got bought out by Wild Oats. And over those eight more years, I was able to get a real background in not only the product itself, but also connect directly with growers over that period of time and start a start many relationships that I parlayed into Earl's Organic, which I opened in 1988. Uh, by myself, not really with any any business plan or any expectations other than uh, I was a produce guy, and this is what I knew to do. And so that was in 88, and we just kept on growing every year. And we've had the fortune to uh, grow every year for 32 years, never had a down year, uh, never let anybody go for lack of work. And we now... Um, have gone through three or four iterations of different warehouses and we're, we consider ourselves a major independent distributor wholesaler uh, in the organic trade in Northern California. So our, our region is pretty much Monterey all the way to the border 
of Oregon in east to Lake Tahoe and all points in between. So it sounds like you guys cover a pretty big area there then. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We, um, you know, back in the day, you know, so we're on the market and, and, and back in the 70s and 80s, the market was set up for people coming to the market. But in those 40 years, it's grown into the market is still there and people still frequent it. But more and more deliveries are going on. We have, I don't know, about 12 trucks, four class A, eight class Bs and Cs. And um, what we saw change on the retail side was owners and companies understanding that they were spending their biggest labor dollar on their produce buyer. And that produce buyer was out of the store most of the time doing buying. So they re rethought that and they brought that buyer back into the store and farmed out the uh, a buying their buying to different jobbers or distributors. And I think that was, that's a negative. I think, I think they lose that expertise that a buyer can give them. Um, but either way, we were able to understand that process and be in front of it. And our job we see is not only a distributor of product, but a distributor of information as much as anything. I can imagine. So walk us through like what you do whenever you're trying to partner with growers, like what are some things you're looking for, yeah. like some practices they follow? What are some things you're looking for and how they produce their products? So what, what's your kind of yes. idea behind that? Sure. Well, we're, we only sell organic product. That's from day one. And so right there, that's, that's a context for us. And we, it, it, part of it is just a very natural process of being in the business. Um, but the, the big draw for me was always with the grower. Um, I got introduced to it just by noting, noting the quality of product, contacting the grower, uh, recognizing them for the job that they are doing. And one thing leads to another where you establish a relationship because that's really the basis of any, of any workable organization. It's about relationships. So we, that's the first thing we look at when we deal with a grower is, can we establish a relationship? And for us, we want to get totally involved. And, and obviously it takes two to, to tango in that effect. So if in our, in our best case scenario, we're dealing with a grower that is totally aligned with us you know, and we will buy and sell everything they, they produce. And we do that with about maybe a dozen growers and then scaling back from there, depending upon their relationship, again, we'll buy whether it's uh, a portion of what they offer us or to whatever degree, many, many growers and sales representatives have a portfolio already. And we're just a number of customers that they have. And that's okay with us as long as one, it, they're, they're certified organic and, and the sell product is organic. It has to be certified by a third party that's, that's global. And that we have a relationship with them to some degree, whether it's as little as all we do is buy it and you visited us and we visited you all the way to, we know everything, we crop plan with you, we set pricing with you and uh, we work very, very closely. 
So it's not unlike any other relationship where you both parties understand uh, what's agreeable to them and how much they want to work together. And then we explore that. Uh, the other element, of course, is the passion that we bring to it. We love what we do and most growers love what they do. So that's a point of connection almost immediately. Uh, and our job is to serve that grower because many growers are fairly removed from the market. They're doing their job. They're kind of like artists. And so we inform them of what the market conditions are. Uh, we're very, very transparent. That is a high principle of ours. So uh, we understand of the triple win. It's got to, it's got to, everybody's got to make money, the grower, ourselves, and whoever is selling the product. So transparency is a, is a major component of what we do. I think that about says it. With season two, we're trying to figure out more about kind of the difference between organic and conventional, like really just kind of the science behind both of them and how they both can kind of coexist. Sure. What are some okay. reasons that you guys work with organic produce? And then what are, what's your philosophy behind the whole organic production system? Well, it, for me, it started on a personal note where it didn't make any sense for me to eat anything other than organic. I, there, was, there was no way I could reconcile eating product that was exposed to, well, in, in one sense, poisons. Um, and I think over, over the period of time, it's been proven that in most cases, the vast majority of cases, um, those kind of elements are not really needed. There are extreme circumstances, no doubt, when you have a very uh, ornery pest or some situation in that particular pot, uh, plot of soil. Um, and th that's a difficult thing. But for us, the organic movement really starts with the soil. And healthy soil is going to produce healthy, healthy crops. Organic growers, at least the ones we deal with, we deal with large ones all the way from Callow to the local guy down the road you know, two acres at a time, um, their commitment to the soil and the health of their soil in really maintaining that and really becoming craftsmen, if you will, it's a craft to do what they're doing. Um, that allows them to reap the benefits that, you know, I don't know if it's going to sound corny, but, but mother nature allows us to do. So it starts with the soil. You take care of the soil it will reap the benefits. That's not to say it doesn't have challenges. Of course it does. Um, well, I've found organic growers to be incredibly in innovative and creative. Um, out in California, the last, uh, the last 12 years, I think nine of them have been drought. And those, in those drought years, growers went to incredible extremes to find solutions for the water situation and other, other issues that come out of with those within within the drought and basically it's it's those practices that got developed that have been integrated within agriculture in a large sense so that all those benefits that get created are, are really we're, we're kind of like standing on the shoulders of everybody else's innovation so to me the organic totally makes sense uh gr growing organically there's a i believe there's enough food being grown I don't think we're in a food desert other than when it's created, whether through distribution or economics. Certainly, there's enough food being grown for everybody. The argument that we need to use certain elements, the grossest ones I'm referring to, are needed to create a bigger yield. I, I don't see that to be factual. 
though I'm sure there's uh, lots of different conversations going on out there by lots of different people. Now, you brought up something very interesting, and that's um, the droughts in California and the fires. So how has, has that impacted yes. you guys at all, like the, the, the wildfires that have yeah. happened in the past couple of years, as well as the droughts? Yeah, definitely the drought did. I'll start with that first, because that has the longest uh, duration of time and the biggest impact, I think. I'm going to touch on one particular issue, other than maybe the, or, the more obvious ones of just lack of water. I'm going to use peaches and stone fruit as an example. Uh, peaches and stone fruit need chill hours. The trees need to become dormant. They need, if you will, they need to go to sleep, not, like a, not unlike a person. And when they have a lack of dormancy, a lack of chill hours, then they don't operate properly. I mean, think of yourself when you're operating on two hours, three hours, four hours of sleep over a long period of time. You become erratic irrational perhaps you just don't function at your optimum it's the same thing what happens with trees they don't they don't they don't operate effectively so over a period of time it may not be one season it may not even be two but in in year three or four their their bloom cycle is thrown off the product the the fruit itself becomes um unusable because it doesn't bloom and fruit correctly. There's all sorts of issues that happen that many guys, many growers, guys and gals were just taken by surprise. And so that's just one aspect of how the drought affected uh, what we're doing. So even in the midst of that though, um, that mostly affected yield, meaning supply. So supply got a little tighter, but mostly uh, at least on the supply side, it didn't. It wasn't that affected. It mostly affected the growers themselves, whether they they ran out of water, they didn't have enough money to drill another well. Um, there's lots of archaic water rights in California that uh, are very complicated, and so there was, was a consolidation period going on, which I think still continues, where um, larger growers are buying out smaller growers because they have water rights and, and occasionally they just have more money to invest in digging more wells. Uh, some people threw in the towel just because it was no longer affected. So in the, the biggest in, biggest footprint there was that, yes, growers got affected. Many of them went out of business. It did not really, though, affect the supply side. Now, that sounds paradoxical. Uh, maybe that's a bigger conversation to have. On the the fires, luckily enough, you know, obviously it affected some people, and, and it was a tragedy for many, many people. On the supply side, again, though, we saw a very small ripple. Mostly it was not affected the, uh, the geographical areas that had farms that were producing organic product. Um, so right there, I think we dodged a bullet. But again, we have another fire season coming upon us, and we've seen what, uh, 17, 18, 19. So I think this is just something we're going to integrate and understand how we're going to do it. I think the bigger question is with the change in the environment and the temperature swings and the uh, environmental impact that's going on, I think areas of production will change. It's going to be hotter. It's going to be cooler. Um, I think we're going to see the, ge the growing region go north as, as temperatures warm. So I think we're just in the middle of a big change 
Uh, and of course, right now we're in a huge change with with the virus. So, yeah, we're in the we're in the middle of it right now, aren't we, Trevor? Yeah, we definitely are. Yeah. So, I mean, touching base on that, how are you coping with? I mean, you've got a bunch of employees. You're trying still to provide um, produce to consumers. Working with farmers. How are you and the whole company kind of managing this whole situation with the coronavirus right now? Yeah, well, we've adopted two sayings, which I think most people have. One, we're, we're deemed an essential service being a food company. So we're, we're graced with that, if you will. And at the same time, we're operating with an abundance of caution. So for us, it's a very interesting dynamic to, to jump between. Um, the caution is about social distancing and being healthy and maintaining that. So, of course, whenever we can, we're working remotely. But as a distribution company, we're distributing. We're we're touching product. We're not robotic. So much of my operations, I would say almost 100% of our operations are on-site doing what they're doing, meaning they're pulling orders, they're filling trucks, they're building pallets, and they're driving and delivering. Um the supply side, again, knock on wood, it is not affected too much. Uh, that is not to say or minimize the struggles that are going on at the grower end, because they are, all the way from lack of uh, pickers to the challenges of people getting sick themselves, and also the challenges of having the labor force not only beyond the pickers, but people just calling out because of the fear of being exposed. So I don't mean to minimize any of this by my tone, but speaking from a pure supply distribution side, we have seen very little uh, effect right now. Um, We went through a huge crush of urgent, excited buying and thus uh, selling and delivering we had a like a 50, 30 to 50% increase the first week. It's now down to about 10 or 15% increase. Um, so we're able to fulfill that and we're able to get product, even though the product got a little strung out. And what I mean by that is we generally buy for three days worth of inventory. Well, that three days was, was, was only one day. So we've now caught up with that. So, you know, that little lag that we had the first week we've caught up with, uh, hopefully, we're all seeing that on the retail side, too, where you're going in the stores and there's, at least on the produce, uh, most produce shelves are pretty full. I think uh, some of the grocery items are very challenged, but on the produce, I think most stores are able to get what they need. Uh, on the on the employee side, we're looking at recognizing our employees in the in the grandest fashion we can, whether it's raising everybody's um, wage, giving extra bonuses, um, feeding them extra meals, um, providing uh, herbal uh, remedies that we've found to be agreeable with all of us. You know, we're looking at every aspect of safety and recognition to our employees so they feel they feel that. So they understand one is what a service to be to be labeled and censor service is a real gesture and for us to take it seriously with integrity and to know that we're feeding people and that is the 
and, and thank God that the virus doesn't attack our, our food system, that that's an essential, very much the, the definition of a essential service. So we're proud of that. And we, we, we take it for the full meaning of what it is. And, and we're committed to doing that. We've had no illness at our job. We have 125 employees. We're 24 seven, but we also know that uh, I think we still have a steep climb in regard to this virus and how it's going to affect us. But our whole intention is to be safe. We've minimized um, uh, people coming up and ordering from us. We now deliver or we, or we walk down the ramp and put it on their truck. We're creating a social distance. We think that's a prudent thing to do. Uh, we'll deal with credit cards anyway. And generally, we don't do any COD. So, um, you know, we're, we're constantly upgrading our, our safety measures and what we need to do for each other. Uh, and I'm, we're, a lot of us are reading every day, five or six um, uh, emails that are talking about the virus and how people are, are dealing with it everywhere from Under Armour to uh, local organizations. I mean, everybody is 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 throwing their best practices out there for everybody to view and hopefully to uh, make use of. Well, that's all really good to hear. Yeah, I saw somebody on Twitter say that they are getting emails from basically any company that they've ever bought anything from, just like updating basically <laughs> everybody on there on how they're dealing with the coronavirus. Well, that's cool that you guys are kind of developing those techniques. And I mean, do you see things as like um, delivering to consumers as something that you maybe could do full time or do you see this as maybe like a window where you can start to do practices that you haven't done before or, or what are you thinking there? Yeah, I think we are going to be learning. We're exposing ourselves to more. One example is the remote. We've certainly played with that before. One or two people we had working remote, uh, generally speaking, being a wholesale distributor with our warehouse right underneath our offices, we're afforded the luxury, if you will, of looking at products and knowing exactly what we're selling and we can comment on it daily and even to the minute of what the quality of that, of, of those turnips, of those collars and, and kale, we can go down and inspect it. Um, so working remote is, is taking that one step back that we still have people on site and they're, and they're sending out information about the quality. So we may adopt more remote working going forward. That could very well be so. I think some other practices are just the, we've already used gloves forever. We're a third party certified food and safety company. So we, we have a lot of safety and health uh, practices already been practicing for a number of years uh, that were dictated to do with, with our compliance. So we've been using uh, gloves forever. Uh, our, our practices are, are pretty well-tuned, but we're totally open to understanding, hey, what is the best thing? What is the guy down the street doing that maybe we're not? So one of the great things is the transparency of information that's coming our way. We can in, investigate and research what are those best, best practices that are coming out of this time and integrate the best ones to our, to our advantage. Also, we're talking to other people within the industry. There's a wholesaler up in Oregon that uh, is a sister company, if you will. They, they're a little older than we are, and we have interacted them, with them for decades. We share information and, and compare ideas and practices with them all the time. So 
a lot of transparency within the industry. And I think there's a silver lining to everything. Um, and that's those silver linings are the ones we want to capture. Uh, but we don't, but we're also the, the term of the, of the, of the time right now is abundance of caution. And that's, we're using that, that element with everything that we do, we're, we're using that as part of the criteria. Are we looking at this with the abundance of caution? And the first priority for us is our people. And when I say people, it's any, everybody within the whole range of our stakeholders, whether it's the growers, the drivers getting the product to us, all of our employees, our customers, our drivers, all those people are for us the number one uh, principle that we are responsible to. And um, that drives everything that we're doing. So it's about people over profit, if you will. It's about people over function. And we found those to be good elements, good principles to, to act from. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. And, you know, I cannot believe I did not ask you this earlier, but what kind of produce do you sell? Like, what are some example produce items that you guys have at your, at your warehouse or that you kind of distribute to consumers? Yes. Yeah, well, we're everything. Apples, a zucchini. Uh, you know, right now we have like 20 varieties of apples. Within those 20 varieties, we'll have three or four different sizes and we'll have diff three or four different grades. So that, that means there's like 80 skews of apples alone. Then there's all kinds of citrus, all kinds of berries. Um, and we're very seasonal. Right now, of course, we don't have any stone fruit, but come April and May, a lot of that citrus is going to be cycled through. That citrus is going to be out of season. And then we'll be replacing that with plums, nectarines, peaches, white and yellow, subacid, the whole range. When we get into the vegetables, we have pretty much everything. Artichokes, beets, carrots, cauliflower, all the greens, all the herbs, all the lettuces. We have lettuces in bulk. We have lettuces packaged um, all the different varieties of tomatoes. We're big on heirloom tomatoes. And then within tomatoes themselves, there's all these different varieties. So if it's, if it's grown organically, we pretty much carry it. We may not carry every single exotic or tropical, but we do carry bananas, mangoes, avocados, sapotes, cherimoyas. So, you know, this is our 32nd year and, um, we consider ourselves expert in the organic portion of of this trade, and uh, we love the hell out of what we're doing. <laughs> That's cool. That's glad to hear. So I saw on your website that you also have a banana ripening room. What is that, and how does that ah. work? Yeah. So over over a period of years, um, well, first of all, bananas are a uh, high attention commodity that drive sales for most retailers. In other words, people come in and they see that as a as a comparative item because everybody carries bananas. So it's a it can be a very price sensitive. It's a very cause as you may know, Trevor, we shop with our eyes. If it's pretty, if it's uh appealing, that's attractive to us, we're gonna buy it. So with bananas in particular, there's a certain color in the and bananas are referred to a lot of times in ranges of color. There's a one, two, three, all the way to a seven color. And the most 
popular appealing colors are color are what we call four and five. A four color is mostly yellow with some green tips. A five is almost entirely golden yellow. Okay, that's kind of a, uh, a format there. The banana ripening rooms, so bananas are shipped from Mexico, uh, Ecuador, uh, Peru. Those are the three main areas. And they're picked green because they have to be picked green. Uh, and they ripen after they've been picked under, under particular circumstances that the ripening rooms create. So what we have is three rooms. Each room will is divided in two, so there's six rooms. So each main room is 20. And 20 pallets is what fits on a truck. So that's what's called the load. So those 20 pallets, you don't want all those pallets to ripen at once. So you break them down and you, we hope we, the first 24 hours we have a banana, we, we set them at two different temperatures to get them going to start the ripening process to create the foundation of which then we can manipulate the different colors that we want, that our customers want. So if we sell 100 cases a day, we want to pretty much make sure we have 100 cases of properly ripened bananas available every day. So we set our system up to do that. You know, I can get very granular with you, but generally speaking, we're working within temperatures of 58 to 68 degrees with different levels of humidity and different and uh, different usage of ethylene gas. So humidity and temperature are the two major aspects that help ripen bananas. And so the bananas room, banana rooms are computerized and we manipulate the temperature and humidity and the release of gas to create the conditions that will allow the bananas to ripen the way the way the system we've learned the system to produce. I'm sorry if that was a little complicated. No, no, that makes sense. I've always wondered about that because we've tried, like we've bought bananas that aren't ripe yet. And, you know, you try, like you put them in the bag or you put their stems in like saran wrap or something <laughs> to get them to ripen quicker. So that's very interesting about kind of how what's going on on the big scale of things. Yeah, I think the main thing you want to do is paper bag is okay if you can also put maybe something in it to help it ripen like a like a an apple. Um, and then also uh, a certain amount of humidity, which an apple will do because an apple is high in, high in uh, moisture content. And then right. you want to you raise the temperature and, you know, a kitchen uh, counter generally will do that. So the ripening temperature is generally in the mid-60s and it'll take a, you know, a couple days depending upon the condition of the fruit when you bought it. Okay, gotcha. Well, that's very neat. Well, the more you know. <laughs> so, you guys are you guys are bringing consumers great products. Have you had any? Yeah. What are some of the biggest hurdles you've had when trying to educate them about food or trying to get them to make smart choices? What are some hurdles you've had in terms of communicating effectively with consumers? Yeah, we have the benefit of the organic consumer is generally a little different than the normal consumer, and I'm going to make some broad, broad strokes here. So of course, everything I'm saying is a generality, but over a period of time, we've seen most of these generalities to be true. One, um, they're generally, again, forgive me if this sounds too categorical, categorical, 
one, they're generally more educated, they generally have more money, and they're more interested in food. And generally with that money, they travel, and they've been exposed to different food, and they also have the money to spend for the organic product. Organic is anywhere from 5 to 10 to 20% more expensive, depending upon the time of year, the commodity, and, and where you're shopping. So with those aspects, people that are shopping organic are generally interested in what they're buying. So our job, is, it's not as difficult as it might be under other circumstances, where you already are kind of singing to the choir. So our job, we've, we've learned that we're not only a supplier of product, but we're a supplier of education. So we're more, we're as much about product as about telling people why we're selling California grown blueberries this time of year and why we're not selling Chilean or Peruvian or New Zealand blueberries. Why are we doing that? Um, you know, why are we doing what are we doing? Also, uh, uh, what's in season? You know, an uneducated person may be asking, I want, but I want peaches right now. Well, peaches aren't locally grown right now. You may be able to get them certain times of the year in the off season from the Southern Hemisphere, but for us, we're more aligned with selling local, selling seasonal, and of course, selling organic. Now, that's not to say that bananas, for example, are not local, but people want them. So it's not, we're not so righteous about we will never sell anything that's not grown within 50 or 200 miles. Of course we do. But our commitment is if it's available within that 200 miles or whatever, we're definitely committing ourselves to buying that. That being said, in the off season, which in California would be noted as pretty much November through March. That's the off season because it's cold and rainy and you, you're the amount of product that is grown here is lessened because you're not growing strawberries in the, in the middle of the winter though you can get a small supply. Like right now, I think we're just starting to get some strawberries from, from California. So the growing season gets congregated down in the Southern California and Mexico and certain parts of Florida, Texas, and maybe Arizona. So the whole country is pulling from those areas where in, the, in July, production is going on all over the United States, all over the world, because it's that time of year. So there's lots of regional um, farms that are producing product. So the stress of any one general area getting the supply drawn from it is lessened for so there's huge agriculture in the east coast everywhere from vermont all the way down to florida and as the season changes it goes north not unlike it goes north here in california so as the season comes on more local product is produced more local product is sold um I've forgotten your question, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was answering pretty well. I mean, just any issues that you've had with educating consumers on where their food comes from? So for us, um, again, like I said, most people are already inclined to our song. So they're already interested in, in the blueberry that we're selling. And they're interested in that we're selling California blueberries. And, and there's no, if you know, quote unquote argument about not having Southern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere blueberries. And of course, we will let them know the benefit of having a locally grown blueberry this time of year and what it means to them and what it means to the local growers. So the challenges would be 
back when we back in the eighties and maybe even the nineties, when we were we started sourcing um organic product from Mexico, there was an initial concern with well, it's from Mexico. I mean, who knows what's going on down there? In organic trade, it has to be third party certified to be organic. Third party means you're not involved in the buying or the selling of the product. You're an independent uh, organization that all you're doing is going down and, and maintaining the integrity of the organic law. So that is true for Mexican product also. Many of the growers that we deal with in Mexico, we've gone down and visited their farms and they've come up and visited our facility. So it's not an unknown. It's not anything to have any fear about. So back, back, like I said, back in the uh, late 80s and 90s, there was some concern about that. You know, that's a thing of the past, quite honestly. I think anymore, there may be some challenge with the, the, the expense of the product on occasion, um, but mostly it's understood as to um, what the circumstances are. Uh, but, that, but the price difference between conventional and organic, if you will, is much closer than it ever has been. Many times we have some stores that are only selling organic product. They don't sell any conventionally grown at all because some items are so close that they don't – what retailers, what they do if they, carry two, if they carry a conventional and an organic tomato, that's called double lining. And many times when it's a close enough price or it's the same price, they'll eliminate one. And generally, they'll eliminate the conventional to focus on the organic. So in California, you know, we're benefiting from it in some sense being the home of organic. So it's a very mature market in the Bay Area. So we're able to um, benefit from that. And by the same token, we were part of making it that way. So it's been kind of growing alongside the market here. Um, we do ship products outside of the state, but a good three quarters of what we do, of what we sell is in state and locally within the region that I talked about, the organic, uh, Northern California. Okay. So the challenges are, are pretty minimum, really, honestly, other than just regular business practices and maintaining the integrity of, of the buying and the selling and the getting paid and payables, regular business practices. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Typical business headaches that you'll have from time to time. Well, well, no, that sounds really good though. Yeah. It sounds like everybody. Yeah. And you know, you are right. I would say most people that buy organic are, they do more research into how their food is made than regular people, I would say. And so that, that is a very key mm -hmm. factor that I think is very important to pay attention to. Yeah. Again, those are generalities, but I think, you know, those categories do fit. Yeah, they're just a little more interested in their food. Um, I mean, I know that's how I got into it. I was one of those label readers. You know, I'll turn around the package. What's in this package? Gosh, I can't pronounce that. What is that kind of thing, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Well, well, Earl, this has been really cool. Kind of learn about Earl's Organic and how you guys are bringing, bringing fresh produce to consumers in, in, in Northern California. So if people want to find out more about you, where can they go to kind of see what you guys are up to? Yeah, definitely our website, uh, earlsorganic.com. Uh, we update it, we update it daily, just as our price list is updated. We don't do any uh, uh, selling online. Um, we haven't found that to be to be effective, but definitely uh, go to the website. Uh, it'll give you uh, information on how to get a hold of us. Hopefully, the information that we provide is useful to you and of course any questions that come up we'd love to hear about them um we you know you could say that we're foodies and that wouldn't be much of a stretch um 
we have all degrees of, of passion and commitment uh, to this industry compiled within Earl's Organic, and it's um, it's it's a pretty vibrant place. It sounds like it. That's for sure. Well, Earl, this has been great, man. We wish you guys the best of luck. Can't wait to see what you guys are doing. And if I'm ever in California, I will be sure to hit you guys up and see where y'all are at. Uh, Trevor, by all means, we, we invite you to stop by our, our warehouse anytime. Uh, just let me know when you're out here, sir. Hey, absolutely. All right. Well, I'll talk to you later, Earl. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thank you, Trevor. My pleasure.